Welcome to Palm Vista Community Church as we continue our series in the book of Genesis. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so we've entitled the series Beginnings. And today's sermon is from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 24. And the title of today's sermon is Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost. All of us, church, know that there's something missing, that the things aren't exactly as they should be. We're coming home from hearing about the new job and promotion we got, and we get in an accident. Or we finally get that situation just the way we want it, and the doctor tells us we have a, a terrible disease. Or our relationships look like they're, they're coming together, and, and things are going well, and we have a wonderful time with our spouse, and then that night we're tearing each other apart. And there's a conflict and you're, you're laying in bed thinking, how did that happen? Right? We all sense that there's something missing. We, we have these glimpses of paradise. We have these glimpses of, of sort of life as it should be. And they're fleeting. They're like the morning mist. They're like the dew that's on the grass by about 10 in the morning. It's dried up. And we're thinking, what happened? What happened to the world? We know something went wrong. And we're just trying to figure out how, why. I don't know if you're like me, but when something goes wrong with something, particularly it's something that I just bought, it drives me crazy till I can figure it out, figure out how to fix it. I'll go online. Like my whole day is like, I got to figure this out. Well, forget about a little, little thing that you buy that doesn't work right or that noise that your car makes. We're talking about life. We're talking about things simply not working the way they should. And we wonder why not. And we're asking God to help us understand it. And he does in this text. Because in this text, he talks about where paradise was lost. Now, I want to remind you of something before we get into the text. Moses wrote Genesis. He wrote it in 1400 BC, some 3400 years ago. He wrote it under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit. And he wrote this book to a people that had just come out of 400 years of slavery. A people that had just finished wandering in the desert for 40 years because they didn't believe God. And they're poised on the edge of going into the promised land. So if, if anybody is asking and wondering about paradise lost, it's these people. I mean, they know, God, why did we spend 400 years in slavery? And why did we spend the last 40 years wandering in the desert? They're looking around them and all they see are tumbleweeds and nothing fruitful and nothing nice. But they've got this promise. They're about to go into the promised land. And so God, God writes this to them to encourage them to explain paradise lost. And in the midst of that... Give them hope of paradise restored. In fact, that's the main point of this message. In the midst of paradise lost, this is very much a story of how paradise was lost. This is the story that defines now the rest of the Bible. But in the midst of paradise lost comes this hope of paradise restored. And those people in the desert getting ready to go into the promised land and face some serious enemies needed the hope of paradise restored because they sure knew about paradise lost. They'd been suffering for 440 years. But they've got some hope. And he writes it to us. 
Because we are their descendants. We are the people of God. We know everything isn't as it should be. Whether it's out there in terrorist attacks in London or out there in rogue nations that are testing missiles that could reach our shores. Or whether it's right in here when I look in the mirror. Yeah, there's evil out there. But I look in the mirror, there's evil in here. In my own home, in my heart. Lord, help me understand it. Help me make sense of that. Are we just wandering around in a desert, just stumbling from work to church to school, back to the kids, to laundry, to clean up? Is there hope of paradise restored in the midst of my experience of sort of a spiritual slavery in a desert condition? I sure know paradise is lost. The answer is yes, yes. Here's the story. Here's the story. This story defines now the rest of the Bible. This is the restoration of paradise is the story of redemption, the story of salvation. This is the story that is the storyline of the Bible all the way to the time that Jesus returns. This story is a true story. And it has three scenes here in chapter 3. The first scene is going to be the fall of man. How it happened. The second scene is going to be the judgment of God, his response. And the third scene is the salvation of God. But here is the main point over those three scenes of this story of Paradise Lost. In the midst of Paradise Lost comes the hope of Paradise Restored. And God inspired Moses to write it, to bring a people's heart from despair to hope. And I pray he do the same to you. This morning. In fact, let me pray for you right now for that. Lord God, I pray that you would lead us on a journey as you led your people back then through the desert of this world that can be difficult and hard, through the conflicts that we're wondering why are they so intense. But Lord, as we have in the distance, we have this, this view of the promised land. I can just imagine the people looking at the mountains as they're on the edge of, of the promised land. They're still in the desert, but they can see the green of the trees and the mountains. And they're thinking about your promise of fruit trees and vineyards and lush forests. And they want it. And they're wondering, is it possible for me? Lord, I pray that you would draw us and give us hope. That in the midst of paradise lost is the hope of paradise restored. Do it by your spirit through your word. O Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Scene one, the fall of man. The fall of man. Read it with me now. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he 
ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to Adam, called to man, and said to him, Where are you? And he, Adam, said, I heard, you, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He, God, said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The goal of this section is to teach Israel about to enter the promised land and to teach us today as we're moving toward the promised land what it looks like to be tempted to sin and the consequences of sin. It is a tragic story. Everything changed after verse 6a. What does it teach us about temptation and how it works? We'll look at verses 1 to 6a. The first thing we see is the serpent. Though God is the major actor in this scene one, he always is, the serpent is introduced as a creature, a created being. He's crafty, more crafty than all the other creatures. But the serpent here represents Satan. You understand that, don't you, church? This is Satan. This is the tempter. And what does he do? What he continues to do today, he begins to badmouth God. This is the original Facebook post. This is the original Twitter post. This is the original Instagram. Oh, did God really say that? And where is he? He starts off by dissing God's name. I want you to notice something. In chapter 2... You have this name for God. Look at it. Lord God. As a matter of fact, in chapter 3, we pick up that name for God again in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God. But here, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, Satan chooses to just call him God. Accurate, but not complete. Because we found out that God, translated from the Hebrew Elohim, certainly represents God as creator, as transcendent, as holy other, as out there. Big, distant creator. Wow. But God's already revealed himself as Lord, which is translated from the Hebrew word Yahweh. This is the aspect of God with us, his eminence. God, this covenant partner who chooses to make covenant with his people. In fact, that name is only used when when he's speaking about Israel, his people. So Satan conveniently fails to say Lord God. He just says God. It's a subtle temptation. Here's, here's the temptation that he comes to, he came to Eve with and he comes to us with. God is distant. God is out there. In fact, there are cults like Islam that has God as way out there. But they never get the God with us in covenant partnership. 
So God's transcendence, but he's distant. He doesn't really know you. God doesn't really care for you, Eve. As a matter of fact, the reason I can tell you he doesn't care for you, Eve, says Satan, is that he says you cannot eat of any tree of the garden. Well, that's a lie. And it looks like Eve understands that it's a lie because in verse 2, Eve said to the serpent, oh, no, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Look at verse 3. But, now what does Eve call God? Does she call him Lord God? Look at verse 3. Just God. Thank you. So what does that tell you? That tells you that subtly Eve is starting to buy into the lie of Satan. You know what? He is kind of distant. I know that he comes here in the cool of the day every day to talk to us. But Elohim, our creator, is he really our redeemer? Is he really Lord God? But she does correct Satan. She says to Satan in verse 3, Now listen, God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Actually, that's more than what God said. God said don't eat of it. But immediately we begin to see these, these lies beginning to affect the woman. Satan goes on to lie in verse 4, saying that, oh, you're not going to die. Pure lie. Talk about fake news. That's the fakiest of fake news, right there. And then verse 5. See, this is a subtle lie. You could say there's a little bit of truth in 5, but it's a lie. Because it's offering Eve something she can't have. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What Satan is saying is, look, God is stingy. God is keeping you from true humanity. God is keeping you from your potential. You can be anything you want to be. Just follow your heart. Yeah. Right to hell. And she did. Because in her heart we see the second aspect of temptation, which is deception. Look what it says in verse 6. The woman at this point is beginning to desire. She's beginning to delight. She's beginning to see that this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is good for food. You see that in verse 6? It's a delight to the eyes. She saw. She took. It's desirable to make one wise. So she took of its fruit And she ate and she gave to her husband and he ate and nothing has been the same since. You want to know why they've been doing a construction project on the Palmetto since the day you were born, Jerry? (laughs) Because of that moment right there. Now I joke But fill in the blank. You want to know why you do that thing you don't want to do? You want to know why you yell at people and you think, why did I do that? You want to know why you fear? You want to know why you covet and crave? You want to know why you take that second and third look, guys, when you shouldn't? Or why you steal? Why you lack faith? Or why why that person hurts you so badly? Or why there's crazy people running governments across the other side of the world threatening to push a button and end us? Right there. there. There's your understanding. Because in the heart of all of us, there's this desire. Listen, right here in this text, you've got the Ten Commandments, the two caps of the Ten Commandments. Because Eve wanted to be God. The first commandment is, don't 
There's no other God but me, says God. And then Eve desired and coveted. That word delight and desire we see in verse 6 is very similar to the word covet in the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Don't covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's whatever. Be content. And, and on either side of the Ten Commandments, right there, contain. I want to be God. I don't want to worship him. And I want what I want. I want it now. It's the essence of sin. And she gave in. And so temptation, how does it work? It, it, it tempts us to, to question God. That is he with us? It tempts us to want to be God rather than worship God. It tempts us to blame others. It tempts us to all these things. And then how about sin's consequences. Under this first scene, we have the fall of man, temptation and how it works to teach us when it happens to us, to teach Israel as they were about to go in the promised land. But then you have sin and its consequences. Look at first verse 6b. 6b. Someone shrank the text here in my Bible. Thank you. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Everything changed after that. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What we see here in verse 7 is that yes, their eyes were opened, but what their eyes were open to wasn't the beauty that God created, but the shame of their nakedness. For some reason, being naked was not shameful in chapter 2, but the moment they disobeyed God and ate the fruit that only belongs to God, the fruit that enables us to make autonomous ethical decisions and create autonomous moral structures, what we're all tempted with, the moment they ate of that, instead of finding freedom and being like God in that sense, they all of a sudden were ashamed. And the first thing they do is they run to the mall to get some clothing. Only there weren't no, any malls. And so they sewed fig leaves. How sad. How sad. So they began to hide from one another. And then they hid from God. The very trees that God made for them to to observe and see the beauty of God. They tried to hide among those trees from the God who made them and those trees. I mean, sin is crazy, isn't it? Have you ever had a little kid that plays hide and seek? You know, my grandchildren. And this is how they'll hide from me. Okay, abuelo, can you see me? Oh, no, Annabelle, I can't see you. I see you! (laughs) It's the same idea. The effects of sin are separation from God, separation from one another, and we see that so tragically in verses 7, and then in verse 8, we see the tragic separation between man and woman. Listen, that phrase there in verse 8, man and wife, do you see that? Put your finger on that. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, verse 8, in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife... We last heard that phrase in chapter 2, verse 25. Only the context was very different. In chapter 2, verse 25, we read, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But after their disobedience, the man and his wife, who were naked and unashamed, who were one flesh, now were very ashamed and were tearing each other apart. This beautiful one flesh relationship. Thank you, Corey, for the message last week. Amazing. As a married person of 31 years, thank you. 
It's helped me to just have renewed faith. But listen, we live in this fallen world, in this desert, where the woman or the man with whom you are married, that you want to be one flesh with, there are times that you are, and there are times you find just tearing each other apart. Like, what happened? This happened. This happened. This happened. It brings shame to our souls. It brings separation from God and others. And then look at verse 9. I love verse 9. Because right there, God could have closed up the Garden of Eden, pressed a spiritual button, whatever. He didn't need missiles. He could have just gone, poof, they're gone. Let's start over. He's the creator. But he didn't. He didn't. Knowing full well what happened, God went in and pursued his fallen creation. Oh, that's the gospel. This is Jesus God walks into the garden, and verse 9 is so, so humorous. He knows exactly where Adam is, but what does he say? But the Lord God said, called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He didn't ask that because he didn't know where Adam was. He asked that because Adam didn't know where he was in relationship to God. And he's asking the same question to you this morning. Where are you? Where are you? Not with relationship to me, but to God. Where are you? (laughs) And Adam pops out, right? And he says to God, well, uh, let me explain it this way, God. Uh, I heard the sound of you in the garden. Apparently, God would walk with man in the garden. Remember, the garden is like, it's a picture of the temple. It's a, it's a temple garden. The garden is the picture of where God dwells with man. The garden is the picture of life. It's really, later on, you're going to see the garden pictured in the tabernacle that God called his people to build in the wilderness where God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And in the temple that God called his people to build in Israel where God dwelt with them in the Holy of Holies. But the garden is the place where man dwells with God. So apparently, this is where God would walk in the cool of the day, probably a picture of God's spirit, where God would fellowship with man. But today was different. Instead of running to God and saying, hey, he's hiding from God. And Adam says, I knew that I was naked and I was afraid. Oh, friends, hear the questions of the judge of all mankind when he asks him in verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? This is the same question that Nathan asked King David in Psalm 51 that we used in our confession earlier on. You are the man. But God brings it in a form of a question. He's pursuing Adam. He wants Adam to see it. He wants Adam to confess. But sadly, what does Adam do in verse 12? He doesn't confess. He does what you and I often do. He blames God and others. Look at verse 12. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me. See, she was a good gift. It was Adam, the one that blew it, not God. Gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate Friends, one of the effects and consequences of sin, the worst one is separation from God, absolutely. Separation from one another. But, but it, it creates in us the blame game. Where are you blaming God for your current problems? Where are you blaming others for your current problems? God wants us to look at him because he pursues us. He wants us to humble ourselves, which is what we did at the beginning of the service, and confess our sin and cry out for his grace. 
And then there's verse 13. He turns to the woman. It's interesting. The serpent began with the woman and worked his way. God begins with Adam and works his way. That's creation order. The serpent is always, Satan is always usurping God's creation order. But in verse 13, God turns to the woman and he says to her, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Scene two, the judgment of God. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent. Now notice, God does not give the serpent a chance to say a word. He asked Adam and Eve questions, not the serpent. Very different here. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Then to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, Wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall Return. God begins his judgment with the serpent, with Satan, and he curses him to crawl in the dust in humility and defeat because surely he will be defeated and he will be crushed under the heel of Christ Jesus, the Messiah. That is what verse 15 is all about. Verse 15 is the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. This is where God says the seed of the woman will defeat the seed of the serpent. This is the conflict that has been going on ever since. This defines why Israel is poised on the edge of the promised land, ready to fight these giants, these Canaanites and these different uh, Amorites and all the, the ites there because of the conflict that began right here. For Jesus is at the head of this. He is the seed, but there is going to be constant conflict between the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ the Messiah, and the seed of the serpent, the devil. And, and it's going to be this. All of, all of creation can be divided this way. Those who are of the seed of the, of the woman, of, of Christ... The righteous seed, the rest of Genesis is going to trace the line of that righteous seed. And those who are of the seed of the serpent, the seed of devil, who is against God. That's it. That's the conflict today. When we tell you that your enemy isn't the person next to you, but it's ultimately Satan and the forces of darkness, that is exactly right because that's what scripture teaches us. And so he judges. He judges the serpent. And he curses the serpent. And he curses the woman. He curses the woman in the very area that he's called her to fulfill. She is to bear children, to, 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 to care for them, to see that the world is populated by righteous seed. But the very place that he causes her to serve, he curses. And there will be pain in childbearing. He curses her in the very relationship that she's to have. She's to be a helpmate to her husband. And yet, because of the fall, she's going to want to dominate her husband. Her desire will be for him. No time to get into it. But that means she's going to resist him in every way she can. And every woman since has been tempted by that. Even righteous women. 
And then she's going to curse that relationship because he's going to dominate her. And instead of caring for her and instead of giving his life for her, he's going to try to dominate her. Listen, Adam should have, first of all, crushed the serpent's head and thrown him out of the garden. That's what guarding the tree of life means. But he didn't. But then secondly, after Eve ate, what Adam should have done is he should have said, listen, listen, that's wrong. And someone has to die because God says someone has to die. But here, kill me, God. I give my life for my wife. But he didn't. He blamed her. But here's the good news. Jesus Christ, the last Adam, did give his life. Jesus Christ did step up for his wife, the church. (laughs) That's the hope of paradise restored in the ugliness of paradise lost. So it gives us hope when we have conflicts in our own marriages. And then he, he curses the man. He told the man to have dominion over the ground, to work the ground, to, to cause it to bear fruitful things. But now he's going to drive the man out of the garden, out of that beautiful Edenic temple of God garden. And he's going to drive them out into the desert. Imagine the Garden of Eden as being in the current uh, Middle East, in the, in the land where it's filled with desert. And so he's driven Adam out. What's so interesting is that Moses is writing this to a people who are in the desert about to go into the promised land. Yeah. And, and he's saying to Adam, now this ground, you ate of that tree I told you not to eat of, you're going to be cursed in everything you do to try to eat. Look how many times the word eat or ate is here in this text in verses 14 to 19. It's all over the place. You're going to work the ground by the sweat of your brow. You're going to have thorns and thistles. Here is the curse to man. Work itself is a good thing before the fall. But what happened with disobedience, now to work is associated frustration and thorns and thistles and ground that doesn't yield properly and sweat of your brow. But oh, don't you see Jesus here? Because Jesus went to the cross to die for his bride. And on his head, they crammed a thorn, a a, a crown of thorns on his head. Pain is associated with the curse. Therefore, pain is associated with the reversal of the curse. This is the mystery that we asked ourselves when we were preaching through 1 Peter. Why, Why is it that suffering must precede glory? Jesus, why did you come and say that I must first suffer and die in Jerusalem? Then I will reign. No one understood it then. We still don't understand it now. We don't like it now. Here's why. Someone had to take the pain of the curse. The sweat of your brow. He sweat blood, the thorns and the thistles, a crown of thorn. Jesus hung on a cross and took the pain of our disobedience and died for us. And then after that suffering came resurrection. And after that resurrection comes glory. That's the hope of paradise restored. And look at death. The ground that Adam was to exercise dominion over now becomes the ground that will absorb him. You've heard it, right? Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. That's why they say that at funerals. You're no longer going to have dominion over the ground. The ground will have dominion over you. But here's the good news. According to scripture, according to Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15, Jesus came to reverse the curse on the screen. Write it down. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. There's the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. There's the crushing of his head, the bruising of his head, and deliver all those who through fear of death, that's us, every human being, 
were subject to lifelong slavery. Listen, the, 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 the effects of sin is to separate us from God. And one of the temptations is to say that God is distant and God doesn't really care about me. And God is withholding from me something that is mine. That's what the woman said. That's mine. I'm going to take it because God's withholding it from me. And that same temptation is there for you and me. But Jesus Christ proves that God is not withholding anything from us. As it says in Romans 8.32 on the screen, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's Jesus. The he, the first he is God the Father. His own son, that's Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So when the lie comes that says God is withholding something from you, you just point to Jesus. No, he's not. No, he's not. Scene three, the salvation of God. The salvation of God, verses 20 to 24, are kind of like an epilogue. So scene one and two is the sort of foundational, there's this amazing fight between uh, these forces, this, this, tra- this tragic story. And then in scene three, in verses 20 to 24, if you marry that up with verse 15, you see the salvation of God. Read it with me, verse 20. The man called his wife name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out The man at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God makes clothing for Adam and Eve. Here they are standing before God in these ridiculous fig leaves that cover nothing. You can't work in that. And God gives them clothing of leather, the, the, the skins of animals. And in that moment, we see a picture of Jesus Christ who takes the rags and the filthiness of our sin off of us and our nakedness and our shame and closes, clothes us with his righteousness. A righteousness we do not deserve. It's mercy, I tell you. It's grace. It's hope. It's hope. But Al, where is paradise restored? I see this thing ending with God driving Adam and Eve out of the garden, driving them out of the place where the tree of life is, driving them out of paradise. I don't see where paradise is restored. We see it in the cherubim. Cherubim? What's a cherubim? Okay, let me explain it to you. A cherubim would be a creature, a fierce creature, with the face of a man, the body of a lion that could fly. Cobra helicopter, Apache helicopter. Think Whatever you can think that's lethal, this thing dwarfs it. And in his hand is a sword, a flaming sword. Fire often represents God's judgment in the Old Testament. So this is a cherubim stationed at the entrance of this Garden of Eden where the tree of life is, and he's guarding the way of the tree of life. And when it says he's moving backward and forward, think of a samurai sword warrior who's very, very skilled. That's what this idea is, like a zigzagging of the sword. Trust me, if you try to get in, you're not going to make it. Well, how does this tell me about Paradise Restored? Well, here's how. Because that garden represents the temple. 
in the Old Testament. It represents the tabernacle. In fact, pictures of the cherubim were put all over the tabernacle. That's that portable facility that was in the desert for 40 years following Israel around. And in fact, there was pictures of the cherubim on the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And then when they built the the physical permanent temple in Jerusalem, there were these pictures of cherubim on the curtains. I don't know if I have a picture there or not. Yes, I do. Now, that, that's, that just doesn't do it justice, all right? But trust me, the, the picture there is of cherubim going, they're, they're guarding this, this curtain, 60-foot tall curtain by 30-foot wide curtain, and, and it's guarding the Holy of Holies where the mercy seat is, the Ark of the Covenant. And in that Holy of Holies is the, the, the candlesticks. Those candlesticks are representing the tree of life, the presence of God. And this is a place that only the high priest can go one day a year. The high holy days. We're in South Florida. We understand that, right? The day of atonement. And he would go in there with a rope tied to his ankle and bells around his robe because he went in there with the blood of the lamb. And he went in there in the presence of God and he sprinkled the blood of the lamb on the mercy seat. And if God accepted that sacrifice, Israel would survive another year. And if not, they would hear a boom. And they would pull him out. Next, because their only hope was that God would accept a sacrifice for their sin. Now, here's the good news. Here's the good news. When Jesus was on the cross, and when he uttered his last, according to Scripture, according to Matthew 27, verse 51, at that moment... Scripture records for us the following, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. On that day, entrance into paradise, entrance into the place of God's presence, where God's holiness is, where holy God can dwell with unholy man, and unholy man not die, was secured by Jesus Christ, the last Adam. And that's the hope of paradise that fuels our hearts this morning. Brothers and sisters, there's much application. No time to get into all of that because I do want to spend some time worshiping. But how do you question God? What temptations do you have to want to be God rather than worship God? Where do you blame God and others when you should repent and just cry out for God's grace? Where do you find yourself naked and ashamed and cry out to God for help? These are all questions for application. But most importantly, may you see Jesus this morning as having made a way for you to be with God and stop hiding from him and others. For Jesus is your Lord, dear believer. And if you're an unbeliever, oh friend, please repent and believe. Let me pray to that end. Worship team, would you please join me? Father, I thank you for your grace this morning. Lord, I thank you for the truth that you are not a distant God. Oh, you are holy. Oh, you are transcendent. Oh, you are holy other. You are not less than that, but you're also the covenant-making God. You are the God who became flesh. You're the God who suffered as we did, the God who humbled himself by taking on flesh like as a child and grew up as a man. And then you bore the pain, the pain of the curse, the sweat of your brow the crown of thorns, the nakedness. You were naked on the cross by design. 
God, we have much to be ashamed of. But Jesus didn't, but he took our shame. He was cursed for us. Oh, Father, if there's an unbeliever in this room, would you just, just, Lord, have mercy on them and let them bow right now. Let them just wail right now and say, forgive me, God, for my arrogance. Lord, for the believers here who are tempted, tempted by the lies of the enemy that you don't care, that you don't listen, that you are distant, you're withholding something from them, or, or are tempted to blame you and others, Lord, have mercy on us. Give us the grace to repent and believe again afresh. In the midst of a desert where our relationships seem to be going south and everything seems broken and fearful and fragile and frustrating, let us see Jesus and the hope of paradise restored fuel us this morning. For Lord, when you move, our lives are changed and we have hope restored in us. Church, let us stand and let us sing that song. Listen, if you want prayer, come down here for prayer. I'll be here with Desi, Corey, and Cindy be here. Man, it's a time of ministry. Don't, don't, don't move away from God yet. We got plenty of time. Press into God right now, for He's pursuing you. So if you want prayer, come on down. Let's sing when you move.